I'm Doug Nadvornik. Today on Inland Journal, we look at Washington's foster care system. This fall, Ross Hunter, the head of Washington's Department of Children, Youth and Families, wrote a column for his agency's website. He talked about his department's plans to improve the system, both for children and for foster families. Washington, he says, has about 9,200 foster children. It's a number, he says, has been steadily climbing as the state works through the opioid epidemic and the aftermath of the Great Recession. To care for those children, there are about 5,000 licensed foster care families. That was the number from mid-2018. It was about 3% higher than the previous year, but Hunter says it's still not enough. He says there's a need for more providers as families cycle in and out of the system. Later in this program, Ross Hunter will join us to talk about his agency's plans for change in the foster care system. But first, a few minutes with Megan Flowers. Flowers and her husband have been licensed foster care parents in Spokane County for almost 10 years. We talked about being foster parents for a long time, um, even kind of through our dating years and early marriage. And we had friends, but we, we always thought we would do it someday when our kids were grown. Um, And we had some friends who were foster parents and they asked us just to babysit one Saturday so they could go to CPR. And we came home and we realized that we could do this. So they began the training needed to get their licenses. Then they backed away and then went back to it. I think there's so much unknown in foster care and so much unexpected. Um, And being a person that likes predictability and likes change, foster care is a stretching and growing experience for me. And so what kind of orientation training did you have to do to become a foster parent? So we're licensed through the state of Washington. And so we started with a three-hour orientation. It's a class you go to to get your questions answered, find out about the paperwork you need to do. And then from that point, there's training courses, application, home study visits, things like that. After all that, the Flowers family accepted its first foster child. Do you remember what that first one was like? Yes. I do. We called him our little grunter because he was two and a half and only had about eight words, but he could communicate just about anything he needed with his grunts and his laughing. And um, our social worker told us we had been baptized by fire because he was a little spitfire. And we, he came into our home a week before our son's first birthday. And so we had a one-year-old and a two-year-old and here we go. And was he a pretty mobile little guy? Oh yes. He never stopped moving. Yeah, he liked to show, throw his shoes out of the car at the grocery store. So you had to really watch for his shoes to go flying. And how long did you have him? We had him for 60 days until he was able to move to a family member with his siblings. And what was it like to part with that little guy? I think I was unprepared for how challenging it would be. Um, and looking back now, I want to always say goodbye and have that grief because when I stop feeling that grief, it means I've stopped investing and I've stopped adoring these kids. And there's some kids that you love deeply and you're their mama and they're really hard to say goodbye to. And there's some that you love and you advocate for and you encourage them along their way. And then there's some that come into your home and you're just heartbroken when they leave. Um, So it's different with each kid what that grief process looks like. But it's something we have continued to process along the way. Megan Flowers and her husband have three biological children and two adopted daughters. She estimates they've had about 70 foster children through the years. The challenge, she says, is identifying each child's individual needs and then addressing them. 
So what about the support system outside of your family when, you know, you've got one who's a real handful and you say, well, I'm not really sure how well we can take care of this one. Yeah, we have had some really challenging kids in our home. And through Fostering Washington, we have five support groups that meet in Spokane. So we've been very active in those groups. Um, We've worked closely with our social workers, the child advocate, which can either be a guardian ad litem or a CASA. We also have good support within, like just networking with other foster families, our church support, our friends support. Oftentimes, if we're going to say yes to a placement, I check with our village. Is our village ready to say yes as well? Sometimes that village includes the children in the foster family who suddenly have an extra temporary sibling or more living in their home, taking some of their parents' attention. Quinn Connor is the 12-year-old son of Stacy Connor, another peer mentor for foster families in Spokane. Quinn, when, when your mom and dad bring in a new child, do they ask you, we've got an opportunity to bring in another child, do they ask you whether or not this is something that you want or not? Not necessarily, but they do give a heads up, and um, they don't expect too much, so it's pretty easy. Whenever one comes in, it's always usually more fun than it is difficult. And what happens when there are difficult things? What are the things that happen that are hard? Well, some of the kids have been through rougher things than others, so they can be a bit um, rougher than the rest, but they always usually, um, in the end, it's just about getting to know them and making sure that they are okay. And And do you have sort of a responsibility of mom and dad said, when we have a child, this is what we need you to do to help? Not necessarily, but it's implied as um, an older brother, usually. Are you the oldest of the family? Middle. Middle. Exactly. Okay. In the middle. And, and how old's the older one? Um, he is 13, and then I have a sister who is also 13. Okay, so you've got all three of you are old enough that you can really help, yeah. especially with little ones, huh? But then we also have three younger ones. Do you have to do things like change diapers and stuff like that? I have never done that before. <laughs> My sister has, and it can range from anything with helping with baths to just playing with them down in the basement until they're tired. And do you get tired of that sometimes? I mean, sometimes it can get tough, but usually, like I said, it's pretty fun. So is it a good thing in your life? It's definitely probably a good thing. I enjoy it a lot. Do your friends know that you have foster brothers yes. and sisters? Yes, all of them know. And do they do they come over and play with them too? Um, most of them enjoy the kids a lot. When we spoke, the Connors were in process of adopting another little boy. You can hear our conversation with Connor's mom in the September 18th edition of Inland Journal. And now we bring in Ross Hunter, the secretary of Washington's Department of Children, Youth, and Families. He's a former state legislator who became head of his agency in 2017. In October, Hunter wrote a column explaining his agency's plan for improving the state's foster care system. So the first thing I did taking this job was I traveled all over the state because I figured I ought to actually know what's going on before I start changing it. And I heard all the different perspectives on the foster parent situation. Um, And honestly, I don't think we have the best relationship with people who, out of the goodness of their heart, are taking in children who have had an unbelievably rough experience and need that support, that love, that care. 
And I think it's incumbent upon us to actually build a positive relationship with those folks, given how difficult the work is. Um, I, I also, at, you know, inherit an agency at a time when we have um, what would get described in the press as a placement crisis. Um, that you know, so if I'm bleeding foster parents, which it turns out is not actually the case. Um, that would be bad. So we're dependent on people. We need to make sure that it's something that's doable uh, as best we can. So what were the problems within that relationship then? Well, some of the problems are structural, right? The, um, the law requires, for example, uh, both federal and state law uh, creates a preference for kinship placements. So when we take a child into foster care because place where they are is dangerous. Um, we're, you know, we need to place the kid right away. We may not have figured out all of the family relationships, but when we find uh, a grandmother in another state, the law pretty much requires us to place the child there. Uh, and at the, by that time, the foster parents have fallen in love with that child because that's what you do with children. And so that's a really hard thing. Um, it's, probably the best thing for the child. Children, tons of research show that children do better in placements with their family. Um, and and so that's that's a thing that creates some structural problems. The other is, is information sharing. Uh, and some of this we can fix and some of it we can't. And so I need to fix the things I can fix. So one of the things that I really want to fix is there's all this information about kids that parents need to have. Where, where are they going to school? You know, what's their grade level? Where, what are they struggling in? Uh, health information, all of this information, we need to make sure it's easily available to parents. Um, and not in, a, not in like an endless stream of email, but really available to parents so they know what's going on with the kid and how they can be most helpful. And I don't think we do super good at that today. Um, but the other is all sorts of stuff like, when is there a court hearing? Well, our caseworker finds out. And the caseworker might have 20 other cases, three of which are emergency removals, and she's going to go do that first because that's a reasonable prioritization. But, you know, she may not get to the four things at the end of her list, which is informing foster parents that the court date has moved, and so they miss a court date that they wanted to go to. And I, I just need to build a system that makes that work better. So that, that kind of information sharing is a thing that we, we could make work better. Another place where we are probably not as helpful as we could be is in uh, providing training to foster parents. The places where we need placements the most are dealing with children who, and again, this is not the kid's fault. This is these kids have experienced a level of trauma that you can't imagine, and it affects their behavior. And in some ways, it affects their behavior in really predictable ways. And if we can do some training around what kind of behaviors are you likely to see from children who've experienced traumas or from eight-year-olds who've experienced this kind of trauma and how might you react to it as a parent? Um, we can diffuse a lot of the places where foster parents just don't feel supported. Uh, some of it is we've got to provide, we do have to provide support like respite and other kinds of care so that foster parents can um, can be foster parents but not 100% full-time foster caregivers. You know, we're not hiring them to run a group home where they're 
expected to staff the thing all the time. So it's, I think it's places around how do we help the parents know what to expect so that they're not surprised and help give them tools that they need, either instructional tools or real, real, real support for them in, in doing the work that they do so that they can um, feel more comfortable and feel more supported in being parents. So in your column, you write that as of about a year and a half, uh, the state had about uh, 5,000 foster homes, about 9,000 foster kids. And you'd made reference before that you thought that you, I think you had the perception that the state was bleeding foster parents. Uh, how high do you want to yeah. get? I mean, how much, uh, how much, how many more do you need? Well, so actually that's, that's actually, it, when I first started in, that's how I thought about it. I was like, all right, how many more do I need? That's actually not the right question. The right question is, how many kids should I have in foster care? And, um, and, and do I have enough foster parents for the kids who I need to place? Half of our placements are placed with um, family, with kin. Most of them are not licensed. So you, know, you take, it's actually 46% of that 9,000 are in kinship placements. They're with grandma, they're with auntie, they're they're with some family. So that doesn't show up in that number. Uh, and then you look and say, all right, well, of the kids that are in foster care, how many of them are in really high-end places? These are kids with serious behavioral health needs. Maybe they're autistic. Maybe they've had so much trauma that they have really sort of un- behaviors that aren't really manageable in a private home. And that's a place where we absolutely need more beds. We've got kids staying in offices because we can't get a safe placement for them. Um, we have kids who are uh, LGBTQ, they're lesbian or gay or trans, and it's a surprising number of teenagers, almost 30% of teenagers in, in most state foster care systems are going to be somewhere on that spectrum. And we need to have parents that are comfortable in dealing with kids uh, where the kid is. Uh, and so we need to do some sort of specialized recruiting in those places. And again, families that are willing to deal with really high needs children, that's the place where we have a severe shortage. Uh, and so we're trying to focus our recruiting on that. I want to focus my retention work on all of our foster parents, including our kinship parents. But the the problem is a little more nuanced than just you have this many kids and this many families. It's do I have families for the kids that need a family? And I need to do more targeted recruiting um, rather than just broad, you know, billboards on the highway. Uh, it's not actually super effective. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So how does the state recruit foster parents, especially in those, you know, for those high needs kids? What's the sales pitch you make? Well, the pitch, the way we did it, the way we do it, the way I inherited the system doing it, is we have a contract with two vendors, one in eastern Washington and one in western Washington. In eastern Washington, it's with Eastern Washington University, um, and they're responsible for doing our recruitment and retention efforts in those areas. Um, and they do some they do some advertising, uh, and they do um, they do a bunch of focus groups and community events on the recruiting side. Uh, most of our recruiting is through word of mouth. I mean, that's what really works. Uh, if people who've had a successful experience can talk to somebody else, then they'll they'll be be much more interested in being involved. But our retention efforts are through there with some independent. There, we'll have people who have had 
lived experience with the foster care system who will be liaison. So former foster parents or even current foster parents who will go and work with foster parents and help them get the kind of resources they need. That's a big part of our retention efforts. So we contract that out. Um, as a normal part of being a government agency, I need to reconsider those kind of contracts on a regular basis. And that that time for us to reconsider that is coming up uh, this spring. And we're going to take a look at that. I don't know exactly uh, what we're going to do in that space, but we'll look at a bunch of alternatives. As with any sort of business, you look at that kind of thing, you say, well, should I make it? Should I buy it? Uh, and we'll make those kind of determinations on what to do. But I do want to take shift that from being a general recruiting effort to being a very, very targeted effort uh, for the kinds of placements that we really need. What we've got to do, particularly if we believe that most of it comes from word of mouth, is we've got to make sure that we're um, we're supporting the people who are going to be the mouths, right? So that they say, you know, this kid had a really hard life before they came to us, and the agency was really supportive of us in providing care for that kid. You know, when we needed a dentist, we had a dentist. When we needed, they told us when we needed to get to medical appointments. And, you know, the, the therapist was able to, to be effective. Like, that's the kind of support that will result in other people wanting to be foster parents. Ross Hunter is the secretary of Washington's Department of Children, Youth, and Families. And now we'll go back to Megan Flowers, the foster mother in Spokane. Do you feel like you get the support you need in terms of, you know, if I have a question or I need some help, I, you know, especially in emergency situations? So I feel like my perspective is a unique perspective because I've been working in the foster care system as a recruiter peer mentor. And so I've been in that role for about five years in various various um kind of strains of that with recruitment and retention. And so I really know the ins and outs of the system very well. I can tell who I need to ask when I need to ask a question. If I don't know what I need, I can find someone who can direct me to someone else. And so oftentimes with the families I work with, I try to be that bridge whenever I can, when they're having an emergency, when they're having um, challenging behaviors. I like to tell them, my families, please call me before it's an emergency and help connect them with the resources that they need. Sometimes we've had instances, especially medical things like getting consent signed at the hospital for a sedated procedure, things like that where we've had interruptions um, and need to really seek out someone who can help with that. But for the most part, being able to navigate the system has been a strength for me and I've had the support that I needed. But sometimes there's a lack of understanding about the emotions of how fostering can affect a family. Is that a case of just not enough orientation, not enough preparation for foster parents, or is there something deeper than that? I think you can only prepare so much because you hear stories and you go through the trainings, but you don't understand what it's like to live in that situation and to see the faces of the kids and see the heartache and see the brokenness. I've gotten to the point where we really love a lot of the biological parents that we work with, and we see the heartache on their end, and we see the heartache on the kids' end, and we see the brokenness of the system. Um, so it's a, it's a big, complicated issue. I asked Megan Flowers about how she would advise Ross Hunter about how to change Washington's foster care system. 
I think some of the biggest things that I would request or I would look for the timelines to permanency. We have foster families who have had kids for six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years. Both of our girls' cases were three years long, and that's a long time for a family to be in limbo, not to mention the child in their home. Um, So that is something that I would love to see some movement on. We desperately need more resources with child care. Child care is very hard to find for kids in foster care. But a big piece that we're missing is for the other children in the home because most of our foster families have more than one child in their home. and More than one foster child? Both. Oh. More than one foster child or more than one biological or adopted child. So we often have one foster baby and then our five kids at home. And more often than not, I can have a month with – between 10 and 30 appointments in it. And so juggling that schedule and juggling the child care can be really challenging. Do you feel like you, you're you busier because there are fewer foster parents and you're kind of one of the ones that they know that they can count on and so you get a lot of calls, maybe more than you would if the foster system was bigger? I think it kind of depends because you can have more foster families, but it also depends on what they're open to take placement of. And are you pretty open to to stuff? We're pretty open. We have taken kids from zero to about 12. We've we've done respite up to about age 16. Um, It just kind of depends on what our family needs at that time. And we've been able to adjust within that range and what our family's needs. What's the compensation that you get for taking children in? So it's a four-tier system um, based on the child's age, the child's needs, and different factors like are you working are they in child care are they in school those kind of things is is it enough to compensate you for the work that you do i'm probably not the best person to ask that question because compensation is really secondary secondary yeah but your 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 expenses are taken care of one way to look at it is that our compensation is less than what most people would pay for full-time child care so we receive for you know 24-hour care of the child less than what you would pay to put your child in child care. However, we haven't ever had an issue. We make sure our child, you know, our kids have shoes and clothes and food and all those things. You're in a good enough financial situation that it's not a huge deal. Yep, and you have to be in a steady financial situation to be a foster parent. Megan Flowers and her husband are foster parents in Spokane County. You can hear more from fellow foster parent and peer mentor Stacy Connor on our September 18th edition of Inland Journal. Thanks for joining us for today's program and podcast. You can hear past programs at the Spokane Public Radio website on the Inland Journal page. You can subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Send your comments and story ideas to inlandjournal at kpbx.org. I'm Doug Nadvornik.